0: Hey there, Powderkeg fans. Nick here from the Powderkeg team, and this is episode 114 of Powderkeg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas outside of Silicon Valley. Today, we're revisiting an old episode where Matt spoke with two amazing guests. The first being David Hall, a partner at the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, a role that has taken him around the country to meet some of the most innovative startups in America's burgeoning tech hubs. And joining David is Mike Pruce, the founder of stakeholder reporting software, Visible, which helps more than 2,000 companies on six continents track and share key business metrics with investors and other business partners. Together, the two possess a great understanding of the ways that unique regional factors influence how entrepreneurs and investors successfully operate. This interview is from September, 2018, and we're bringing it out of the archives because it's so packed with awesome advice and it's one of our most popular episodes so let's jump right in
1: uh first of all david thanks for being here man uh, it's really good to have you matt
2: it is great to finally make this happen we've been planning this for years and uh, <laughs> it's 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 just it's an honor to be on with you a and b it's, it's great to see i've seen what you do on and, and for us and with us on the rise of the rest tours having been a longtime partner and it's great to, to sort of to return the favor and and be on powder kick.
1: Well, and with that, it would not be uh, you and me duo if we didn't get a selfie. Of course, we're always taking the selfie on the stage. I got your fist bump right here, man. Um, And then also without an introduction. Uh, So I don't always get the chance to do a full introduction with you on stage, but I thought I would take a moment right here to give a little bit of background on you because I think it'll give some really good context for the discussion. Uh, I've learned that you are a Baton Rouge, Louisiana native. Uh, you got your uh, bachelor's in economics at Morehouse College, graduated magna cum laude, and got your MBA in business from Harvard Business School. Uh, you worked in business development, financial analysis, and m for companies like Akamai, The Washington Post, and Morgan Stanley. Uh, board observer for many companies, including Revolution Money, Vinfolio, Kufers, uh, many, many others. Uh, you've been on the Rise of the Rest tours. I think you've been on the most tours other than Steve Case himself. Uh, And I think the only one you missed was due to the birth of your son, which is a totally legit excuse. Uh, You started there at Revolution in 2006. um, And that fund uh, of Revolution has invested more than a billion dollars in companies based outside of Silicon Valley since 2005. And now with this new seed fund at Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, you have $150 million at your disposal. Well, Ostensibly, some of that's already deployed, uh, but from entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Sheila Johnson, Howard Schultz, uh, it's really, really a pleasure to have you here. Is there Are there any major career highlights that I missed in that introduction, David?
2: You, you, you hit everything. The only other huge career highlight for me was getting married to an amazing wife who's been supportive of me flying all around the country and talking to entrepreneurs, but you hit all the all the highlights. Awesome job! You're good at this.
1: <laughs> Done it once or twice with you, and uh, it, it's been really cool uh, to get to know you. You know, as I mentioned over the years here, um, some of the things I haven't had a chance to talk to you about is uh, some of your earlier uh, earlier days. Even going back to a teenager, I know you were into a lot of things. Uh, you've mentioned that you're involved in student government. You were involved in plays early on. Um, you also uh, earned the title Most Likely to Succeed when you were in high school, which clearly has panned out for you. Um, what is it that you think gave you that drive uh, early on uh, in your, in your? I mean, I don't know if you can call your high school your career. I guess that is your career, your early career. What gave you that drive where your student body even said you're the most likely to succeed?
2: Yeah, well, first, first I want to say that it, 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 it was an honor being voted that 100 years ago by my peers but the reality is like you know like a lot of kids i had great parents i had you know i was really blessed to have an amazing family and an amazing support system that kind of enabled me to dream really big and dream dream to do things that 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 they that my folks my grandparents that they never had a chance to do and and it is it, it it was an awesome freedom to be able to dream and and be and and enter into things that that were you know debate play you know like theater student government all these things were so interesting to me and you know helped to feed my my like hyper extroverted tendencies um, but but to me you know it was really honorable. It was a big honor to, for my student body to vote for me as, as most likely to succeed. They, they felt that there was something in me that was capable of doing more than 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 sort of the average Joe and or Jane, and that that gave me a lot of. It's something that's lingered in the back of my head as as you're making lots of these little minor decisions since high school. But the reality is, it's you know, I I, I like doing well. I like working hard. I like seeing the results of of hard work sort of materialize into new things, better things, into leaving institutions better than 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 when I started working in them. And it's just constantly been something I've been attracted to.
1: Well, and I think your student government uh, chops that you built up there, clearly you've continued to develop those skills because one of the things I've seen you do in all of these cities, I mean, just on this last tour in places like Memphis and in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, engaging with entrepreneurs there to to talk to them about how to raise their first round of capital and giving them feedback, uh, seeing you interact with these founders. One of the things that you seem to have a knack for is relating with people. Is that something that you've always, has always kind of come naturally to you, like say was in your DNA or is that something that you've sort of learned to develop over time?
2: It's a little bit of both. I mean, like the the essence of it, I'd say i I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that it comes pretty naturally. I, I, I like talking to people. I like hearing their stories. as As I've gotten older and and as I've developed in in my career, like the the nature and the understanding finding common ground for people in in conversations to me is the biggest key to being able to have a level of conversation and and a level of relating to them that that makes them comfortable to share and you know for my for my job today as an investor it's 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 pertinent it's 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 critical for me to be able to go in and have an honest dialogue with with an entrepreneur and be able to figure out both the things that they're telling me directly the things that their body language is signaling and and be able to have good inference into the things that they're not telling me and those were all skills honed you know since i was 5 years old talking to the the grocery store checkout lady, and trying to figure out what, what you know, how, how, how I can understand sort of what's making her tick, and so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's been it's been a huge success and something that I've learned how to develop and learn to be a little bit more insightful, but but luckily it's always come pretty pretty easily for me.
1: No, that's good. Uh, one of the things I've seen you do is is you're just genuinely interested in people, and uh, I think uh, the more founders and even investors kind of. Can develop that skill set. I think that's even like a Dale Carnegie principle, right? Like be genuinely interested in people. Um, that, that's one of the things I've seen you just have core to your DNA. Always asking people about them. Um, you know, usually it takes a while for you to get around to rise to the rest and what you do and how you guys engage. You're always first thinking about, you know, what what is it that makes this entrepreneur tick, and then how can you help that person? Which uh, I think goes a long way.
2: Yeah for sure everybody has a story and the the more you everybody has a story and everybody wants to be heard and i think that the more that you enable them to tell you their story they're they're unbelievably open and unbelievably forthcoming with the good the bad the ugly and i think the discretion of being able to pick out what is what is at least as it relates back to to the investor role what is bad and ugly, and even good—that's negative from an investment perspective, because it's all sort of part of their their collective story and, and, and deserves both an audience, but also deserves like
1: an empathetic ear. Absolutely. Well, and you've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs. You've been on six of the seven tours at Rise of the Rest, and um, you've been in communities like New Orleans, uh, like Indianapolis, as I mentioned, you know Memphis and and Birmingham, uh, of course Nashville. Uh, are there any similarities you see in these tech communities themselves, uh, looking at uh, these sort of second and third tier tech hubs around the country?
2: Yeah, the most common similarity I see in, in, in a lot of these cities is this desire for community necessarily above uh, above individual success. This, this really deep notion that says, you know, a rising tide will lift all companies, and I think that you know, a couple of successes like Shift in, in, in Birmingham or like Exact Target in Indianapolis really put those cities on the map and, and, and give every other entrepreneurial opportunity uh, or, or founder in those cities. A little bit more lift and make it that much easier for them to do well. And it's really important for for founders to, to network and create this deep network density as a community because that, that only helps make it more efficient for venture capitalists flying in from San Francisco to spend you know a day in Birmingham when there's five companies to meet. If, if you know they're coming to meet ships, but but for ships and the folks at ship to say, hey, there's two other companies that you guys should absolutely meet might not necessarily result in an investment, but definitely results in putting putting more companies on the radar of, of top-tier investors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've definitely experienced that myself, some of those similarities. Um, I, I'm curious, though, as you talk to these companies, have you seen any major differences between these communities as you've gone from city to city? Yeah,
2: you, you know, it's funny. Like, so... Every city has their own uniqueness. And, and, and instead of leveraging the differences and instead of being sort of apologetic for their city, seeing them sort of claim whatever, either the, the benefits or the challenges that they've uniquely had to face and, and sort of execute on those is really interesting. For example, mm-hmm. in New Orleans, you know, Hurricane Katrina created one of the most unbelievable urban plights in the United States history. And and as a result, New Orleans had to rebuild its entire education system. So what ended up happening is lots of Teach for America alums moved and and sort of set up shop in New Orleans and really created this new ed tech hub because they they would do Teach for America. They would leave. They would found these companies that were dealing with everything from instructional design to sort of intervention for behavior challenges. And they really created a little mini ed tech culture in New Orleans. All based on the ramifications of a horrible catastrophic event but now have yielded some really interesting new companies. You, you, you look at that with with looking at one of our investments in a company called Siva Technologies. Siva is based in uh, Detroit and the founder of Siva, one of the founders, was a former Chrysler mechanic who had, had, had been tackling really tough problems for Chrysler for years. He retired and then came up with this way of, of helping um, Autonomous vehicles clean their sensors because mud and dirt and snow really screw up an autonomous vehicle. If if they can't, their sensors can't can't properly see. He then partnered with his daughter, who was a technology executive at Microsoft, and started a new company manufacturing these these sensor cleaning uh, mechanisms for cars and, and other autonomous vehicles out of Detroit. So it totally makes sense for for a, a auto you know an automotive industry veteran to restart his, his the second phase or the third phase, really, of his career out of Detroit. So it's really interesting to see how there's some that totally make sense. Detroit automotive makes sense. But 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 the, the really interesting thing is seeing how new things pop up in, in places like EdTech in New Orleans. It's fascinating to see.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Are you generally kind of looking for a specific trend when you go into a city? Like when you come to Indianapolis, are you like, oh, we are very interested in marketing technology? Or is it uh, more of a hey, we know there's cool stuff happening in Indianapolis. Let's go and just find the best companies there.
2: Well, it's it's, it's kind of three things, right? Thing number one, if, if there are some natural company in, uh, or or city or regional industries that makes sense to 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 be launched from that city. So, kind of ag tech in places like Des Moines kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, um, happy to really exploit that and understand that. But then, but, but then there are two other things, right? And a lot of these cities, they're really good public and private research universities that may or may not be sort of exactly in the city, but sort of proximal or regionally regionally accessible to the city. Seeing what comes out of those those universities based on you know like like the, the, the language uh, application Duolingo came out of Carnegie Mellon because that's where like the professor was and so seeing how those types of mini sort of cottage industries are created from IP that comes out of out of universities is really really something that we've taken note of a couple times and then the third fact that I think is more a more recent phenomenon is you're seeing travel spouses, You know, husband or wife has to move for work and they're going from, you know, Google's headquarters in San Francisco to some, you know, one of their other outposts. And the the spouse who travels, who may be a technologist themselves, is like, I find myself in St. Louis and I don't have, you know, my community. And so they start to build it. And we've invested in a a swimsuit e-commerce platform actually based in St. Louis that was a result of a travel spouse leaving New York City. And partnering with, a, with another local founder and, and creating this amazing women's swimsuit company. So you see lots of ways for these communities to happen, both sort of um, organically because of the, the, the industries that have been in, in the region for a while, but also transplants come and bring their, 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 their thinking with them. And, and you always see new technology spring out of you know the next generation of entrepreneurs that are graduating from universities.
1: Those are some cool examples and definitely you see a lot of that grit and hustle uh, in the founders, just like you would find in the Valley or, or New York, sometimes even with a little bit more grit and hustle, and a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder. Um, you know, I, I've heard you say one of the things uh, that you would have told your 15 year old self uh, was to maybe uh, have a little bit more fun and maybe enjoy some more balance in the journey. Uh, do you think that that uh, advice applies to founders who are in the trenches of a, a startup?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, so so may, maybe not necessarily guys under have more fun, but definitely seek more balance. Right, figure out the ways to to re-energize the parts of of the journey. Because being an entrepreneur, I, I I always tip my hat to entrepreneurs because that is a it's seven days by 24 hours type of job, and you're always on and figuring out ways to to get that recharge in a meaningful. Manageable, positive way is is really important, and and so I, I think that you know the, the, the very simple way of saying have more fun actually does translate. But if if it's unplug for a couple of hours and take a hike or do a run or play with your kids, you you've got to create that distance because otherwise, the, the the burnout factor is so much higher when when there's no there's no counterbalance it's not going to be you know day for day or hour for hour. But if for twenty minutes you've unplugged, you've turned off your phone and you're focused on reading a book to your child, that interaction should give you a little bit of charge to, to load back up and do another couple hours of work at the at, at the end of the day. I, I think it's it's imperative for entrepreneurs for any type of professional to be able to strive and find that balance. It's it's good for mental health. It's good for physical health. It's good for emotional health. It's good for maintaining relationships. And when all of those other things start to go go negatively, the performance of the company, the performance of the executive tends to fall pretty precipitously.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, there's always benefits to that as well. For example, I know you've become an expert at sharks as your son has become more more of an expert at, at uh, sharks himself uh, as you were kind of retelling. Oh my
2: gosh, my, my, my kids know every fact there is to know about sharks. So I, <laughs> I, I, I am, I've become a little expert on, on all of their hundreds of teeth that regrow every six weeks or whatever the number
1: is. Well, now when a deal comes in that's related to sharks, you're going to be the, the partner that they, that rise of the rest calls on for this shark tech startup.
2: Uh, I'm the Megalodon expert here.
1: I <laughs> love it. Uh, well, what are some of the other advice that you give to founders? Uh, besides just kind of keeping some balance, uh, what's some of your most frequently given ex- advice to portfolio company founders?
2: Yeah. So I, I think particularly for our founders, which find themselves outside of new york boston san francisco generally the first biggest piece of advice i give them is don't apologize from being where you're from i mean you you, you see that 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 you see an apologetic stance when they're pitching their company and a lot of that manifests itself in and having these these strange comparisons where you know their number one valley based competitor just raised a 50 million dollar round from you know top tier brand name firms and and they they want to go out and do an ICO because they've got to be competitive and they need to raise 50 million dollars themselves and that's that's just not the truth. I mean, like you, it, it, generally it's it's about building the best company and if you can build the best company in, in a in a place like Nashville, in a place like Miami, in a place like Raleigh-Durham, you should you should double down there and your your cost advantage is going to be greater. And, and, and your ability to really stay focused on the mission as opposed to having to always worry and look over your shoulder about the opportunity cost of what you're not doing is, 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 is not so much and not so, so top of mind of a challenge. Um I think the other piece that I always tell them is hire smarter than they are. I mean always, always look for people that are gonna challenge them. No one is going to question their ability to run the company or or, or be the founder or chief executive of a company. But but if you under hire and you
1: David, I think we may have lost your audio there. I'm I'm not sure uh we caught the last half of your answer. Um Uh, I'm not sure if maybe it's the headset or, uh, or, or if we're connected. Um, but I think this might be a good transition to bring Mike on while we figure out what might be be going on with the the microphone. Mike Proust, can you hear me?
3: I can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you. Absolutely. Maybe David just had some connection issues. Well, with that, let's bring on, uh, our next guest. And hopefully we can get David back on here um, while while we figure out some technical difficulties there. Uh, Our next guest, I'm super excited to have on. We actually had him on the show two episodes ago, but I thought this was such a relevant episode to bring him back for um, because he's got a very interesting story. I actually first met our next guest um, when he was still a senior in college down at Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, I had the pleasure of helping recruit him into a program called the Orr Fellowship Program, which was an entrepreneurial fellowship program based here in Indiana, meant to help keep talent in the state of Indiana. He, of course, joined a team, uh, a high growth tech team. Uh, he is very qualified to be in the Orr Fellowship, very qualified to be an entrepreneur. Uh, he joined a team that kind of outgrew the ecosystem here in Indiana. At the time, there was not enough connectivity to capital. There was not enough scale in terms of uh, cloud and hosting power because it was, at the time, the fastest growing company in the history of the internet. And that company, Formspring, moved out to San Francisco. So I was recruiting Mike to try to stay here in Indiana, ended up uh, recruiting him to go out to the valley, he ultimately went out to the valley, uh, had an awesome experience out there, uh, crazy rocket ship ride at Form Spring, and would love to get some of his perspective on that. Um, but then came back to the Midwest to start a company called Visible. Uh, and if you tuned into episode 55, you've heard a little bit about Visible, uh, but if you didn't have a chance to tune into that, uh, Visible is a stakeholder reporting platform. It's used over 2, 000, used by over 2,000 businesses, and it's used to kind of help keep all of your team members, investors, and stakeholders engaged uh, through some beautiful reports. Um, but I, I, I don't want to give too much uh, about the platform away, because I want to give Mike a chance to kind of pitch uh, what Visible is doing today and sort of uh, a little bit of background on that company. So. First and foremost, Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here, man.
3: Matt, thank you for having me. I would love to say first-time caller, long-time listener, but that is no <laughs> longer true. So uh, excited to be back on and uh, jamming with you guys today.
1: Absolutely, man. Good to be
3: here. can, yeah, you, can so, you
1: tell me a little bit uh, about uh, about Visible?
3: Yeah, Visible uh, is a is a web application that is uh, helping empower entrepreneurs and founders and other high-growth companies uh, report uh, data and updates, successes, and challenges to their most uh, important uh, stakeholders. So that stakeholder could be your wife or husband. That could be an uh, angel investor or a venture fund. Uh, really, anyone that's taken a chance on you and, and um, been part of that journey, we help companies uh, share that data directly back to, to the
1: people that matter most in, in their company. I love it man uh, and you said uh, I saw that you serve over two thousand companies right now um, where's yep. kind of the sweet spot for you guys what stage company and uh, and what's sort of the the pain point that you're helping solve the, the main pain points
3: yeah I would say you know most of our customers are maybe two people just getting started in a garage all the way up to you know two three hundred person companies so uh, in terms of like a true sweet spot you know I think it's it's anyone from 10 to 100 employees Uh, but the one interesting thing about visible is that it's not just a problem in the valley or or san francisco it's it's a global problem um we our designer kieran put this awesome graphic together of uh location where all of our customers are and we have customers in every continent except antarctica so we'll probably be doing some prospecting there soon just to say we we have all seven nice um but uh yeah, and, and the problem really is, is is pretty simple, right? I have uh, all these different disparate data, you know, uh, apps that I'm using to run my business, things like QuickBooks or Zero, Salesforce, Stripe, uh, and I want to be able to tell the story of that data uh, and report it back to my investors. Uh, the one thing you you know, when we started Visible is how can I effectively communicate with my investors and leverage leverage them for their expe- expertise? Uh, and we just found that. Uh, email was inefficient or it's happening across email and spreadsheets and text messages and one-off meetings. How do we give a a really professional and beautiful looking report that's super simple to put together? So that was the the impetus for doing it. Um, But yeah, to kind of give you a long-winded answer, uh, you know, 10 to 100 person companies, but really all across the world.
1: Nice, man. Oh, I know that we're we're a user. I would not say we're a power user yet, but uh, I think we will be soon. We're We've been kind of updating a lot of our other systems that would feed into Visible to make sure that all that data is clean, because uh, I, I know it's one of those yeah. things where it's like uh, garbage in, garbage out. If, if you don't have clean data going into the system, you're not going to have clean data coming out. Um, but it, it's been a really cool thing, uh, and I've heard I've heard from a lot of investors that get reports from Visible that it's a uh, it's nice you know it's it you can kind of fully customize the report um it's not just like a standard uh, update which is really nice and makes it easy to kind of go through that entire investor update process and as someone who's transitioning over from creating a new email from scratch every time i'm very much looking yeah. forward to the software fully automating that process
3: yeah awesome good to hear
1: <laughs> yeah man well, I, I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of background, um, you, you know, we were talking with David a little bit about uh, his background coming from Louisiana, obviously going mm-hmm. on to uh, the DC area, and now traveling all over the country, seeing these different tech communities. Uh, you've spent some time in the Valley, but also in Indianapolis, Chicago as yep. well now with um, Visible. What are some of the, um, the similarities that you've seen across these ecosystems? And then what are some of the differences?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so, you know, I went to, grew up in the Midwest in the Chicago suburbs and, and uh, went to Indiana. And then from there, uh, my company, Formspring Spring, actually ended up moving, like you said, from Indianapolis out to, to San Francisco. And I think one of the biggest things that uh, you read about all the time, but really surprised me when I first moved out to San Francisco, is how willing people are to help and meet up with you. And that's just like something that still just kind of shocks me to this day is it really does have that uh, pay forward mentality. And and, uh, you can surround yourself with just incredible people uh, that you would think would never give you the time of day. Uh, And and I'm starting to see that across all these different ecosystems as well. And I'm sure David could attest to this. But, uh, you know, each metropolitan area or city or, or location kind of has its own culture and vibe. Uh, so it's kind of hard to compare and contrast you know apples to, to oranges but uh, that was kind of the biggest thing but you know even just being plugged into the Indianapolis community uh, and all the work you've done with with powder keg and, and some of the other people there uh, you know has that same mentality where there's one kind of cohesive um, culture you can kind of wrap your arms around and um, same with Chicago you know Chicago uh, 1871 was kind of the the jumping off point for Chicago in terms of a really big epicenter of where people meet up and uh, do events and meet each other at work, uh, get advice. So um, each city is different, but all in all, I think you know they're all around kind of that community
2: building aspect.
1: Well, I wanted to wait for uh, David to hop back on to ask some more questions about Visible. And I think we have uh, David back on now. David, are you with us?
2: I am with you. Can you hear
1: me? Yeah, right on, man. Cool. Good to have you back. Sorry about that. Um, glad we could rock and, rock and roll with the punches um perfect thanks you have, you have any questions for uh, mike on visible and, and what he's doing there yeah
2: Yeah. Well, well yeah so first your 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 medium page is amazing and i, I spent a few, few minutes going through some of your medium posts and i think that that that's that's one of the more interesting ways of of sort of putting your company on the map how do you find getting the story uh, about about the company and and sort of telling the visible story in a way that resonates to sort of people who don't know you and people that your marketing folks aren't targeting. How, how do you, how do you articulate that in a way that that's a discoverable and be sort of meaningful?
3: That's a great question. I really wish I could take credit for the medium page too,
2: um,
3: but it's not me at all. So that is, uh, probably Matt and Andrew on our team who've done an incredible job with, uh, with our marketing. I, you know, one of the things that I, uh, we build on the company uh, is just like, how do, what do we enjoy engaging with and reading? And and how do we like to be, you know, marketed to ourselves as, you know, um, buyers of different products? And we have this idea of like a really authentic voice. And I think that's one of the big things that we've tried to incorporate into everything that we do is having this level of authenticity and just kind of being real, uh, but not being like, but also kind of towing the line of trying to be professional as well. Cause there's, I think a fine line of like authenticity and professionalism. Uh, but we always try to have a super authentic voice. And at the end of the day, we're never trying to pedal or, or push visible on someone. Uh, we're just trying to educate and give some insight and just create value for for founders. Uh, we're doing a, a relaunch of our email uh, newsletter that we've been religiously sending out every week. Um, and we're calling it the Founders Forward um, probably next week going forward, and it really, it's just kind of uh, taking a page out of that Mattermark Mattermark book, almost, where uh, it's just kind of curating and giving you the most relevant information about um, building your business, whether that's raising money, hiring people, uh, attacking some sort of problem you might be encountering. So in terms of reaching people, we try to do really creative things that maybe are are, uh, a little different. Uh, we've done a lot of word of mouth as well. So one of the big ways we get a lot of our customers is is really word of mouth, either through uh, founders referring other founders or investors telling uh, founders about Visible. So you try to give a creative spin, something a little bit more unique, and keep that authentic voice.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a heck of a problem that you're tackling, and and I, I think yeah. like like fostering seamless and and really high impact communication. You know, from from sort of one to many, where where the constituencies are all a little bit different, and everybody's looking for a slightly different chart or graph or data point, it's 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 really not a simple task to solve. So so being yeah. able to, I, I think I think for which leads me to the next question about sort yeah. of the depth of integration that you guys have to look into to like you know cross system to sort of start automating a lot of this reporting functionality. How do you think about that from a tech perspective? And you know, every day there's a new you know, finance application or a new CRM mm-hmm. that's coming live. How do you prioritize what's gonna come next onto the platform?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question and one that kind of wraps my brain every day and, and the team as well where it's, once you have integrations, this is kind of the, the beauty of them, right? Like they're great, people love them. You can create a really great experience pretty quickly. They also expect every integration in the world. So you get a customer that's like, hey, you need to work with 90% of the tools I need. What about the other 10%? And, uh, you know, we prioritize integrations just kind of based on, you know, what does that ecosystem look like for for that particular company? So, uh, you know, Stripe and QuickBooks are almost the de facto tools for finance and accounting for most companies until, you know, 10, even $20 million in revenue now. Uh, Obviously, Salesforce and HubSpot have a lot of market share when it comes to uh, your CRM and how you're running your sales and marketing operations. Uh, And then, you know, we really kind of push Google Sheets as one of our our big integrations because what we've just seen in general, and to Matt's point earlier, um, a lot of the data systems and and data that you have set up as a company is kind of dirty. And so even just doing a direct integration, you're probably going to get bad data out. So most people are massaging or manipulating data in a Google Sheet before they're even reporting on it. So we really kind of strive to say like, hey, data integrations are great because they're gonna help you know alleviate some of that pain. And, and we do wanna get you to a point where it's seamless, but really the most important part is actually kind of the qualitative context mm-hmm. and just sending that update out, right? It's like, why did something happen? What can we, you know, what, why are things going really well or really bad? And supplementing that with data versus focusing on on charts and data integrations. because. You know, a lot of times those are gonna change in six months anyways, depending on you know, where you are in your life cycle as a company.
2: Yeah, very cool. Um Matt, I don't wanna keep Yeah, you know, I, I know how to do this pretty well, so no, I can keep, keep going keep, can keep keep, the questions.
1: Keep rolling, uh, how, keep rolling, man. How,
2: how is how is recruiting for you in Chicago? How are you finding the team that you need and, and where where are there there are gaps that you, you've got to look outside of Chicago to help fill?
3: Yeah, so we have this kind of interesting um, aspect of Visible and the the very short abridged version is uh, one of our core investors, Real Ventures in Montreal, actually was building this application internally just for themselves. And we ended up bringing on our CTO, uh, Corel, there, and he was really in love with this idea of, and I, I, it's, it's been awesome, of hiring talent anywhere uh, it exists so we've taken this approach of we want to hire kind of the best and brightest um and location shouldn't be uh, a part of that equation And so we actually have team members all over europe uh we have team members in chicago and um yeah so to to answer your question uh chicago you know there's an amazing ecosystem here there's a ton of big companies that you can recruit from now and uh but we have, you know, we just brought on another team member in Indianapolis, so we actually have a distributed team as part of our uh, core value of, of what we want to build that visible.
1: David, is that something that you've seen at some of the companies that you've talked to um, just traveling around the country that there's, there's more distributed workforces than, uh, than you might find in, say, uh, Bay Area or New York City?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's just a phenomenon of, of work in general. I mean, I think that you you you're seeing more people. I mean, our our partnership is distributed. We've got partners in in Minneapolis. We've got most of the most of us are here. But I, I think you're you're seeing people have to work and and have to have work accommodate to. To, to where you can find the talent, where the talent lives, where the talent chooses to live. And I think you know, one, of the, one of the things we're seeing a lot, frankly, is, is that people are getting priced out of New York City and the Bay Area and, and, and choose to you know, wanna live in places like Chicago and Minneapolis and Madison because, because there's such a, such a huge cost advantage. I think the, big, the biggest challenge we see to that, frankly, is C-suite reporting, uh, uh, recruiting. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it, like the the junior staff and and sort of the the mid level staff. I, I think having them be distributed is is easier than maybe having sort of the the senior team also be distributed. I, I think sometimes you need to have a little bit of a, 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 a HQ concentration, and and I think for for that it's actually hard to have a, a, a CMO that commutes from New York to Indianapolis. And, and sometimes it's even hard to sort of extract them from a New York to, to, to be in an Indianapolis or somewhere in the Midwest. But, but we're seeing more of that because a lot of those folks that are, are CMOs went to places like IU and are like, wow, it'd be really cool to be able to go home and, 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 get on a, and, and stop getting on planes at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but actually be able to live in my hometown or near my hometown, near my folks and my family, and my support networks.
1: Yeah, we call those boomerangs. Good term of art. <laughs> and, and somehow got Mike to come back to the Midwest, although I think, I think there was a magnet there for him uh, as well to come back to the Midwest. Um, yeah, my wife.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Best boomerang ever. Yeah. That's, Best, that, 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 that works. You see that happen a lot.
1: That, that is very true. Well, um, I, I wanted to kind of get a, a little dialogue going between both of you, uh, one from the founder side. And, and Mike, I know you have extensive knowledge of the, of the investor side of this equation, too, because that's what your product does. Um, but what are some of those things um, just from an investor-entrepreneur relationship? Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, we don't have to necessarily have this conversation be around the investor update emails, because I know there's more than just update emails that foster a relationship, but what are some of those things? And David, maybe you could kick us off. Um, what are some of those qualities or even habits that you've seen, uh, founders have that has, have really helped develop into strong relationships with you as an investor?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, it's, it's kind of honest early often right like if you, if you if you're able to hit those three standards of communication honest like t- tell me the, the whole story the whole truth what's actually happening uh, you know what's a- honestly characterize the conversations that you've have you're having with either prospective investors or prospective customers that that goes a long way because it helps understand helps helps me understand is it a failure of the the story or the narrative is it a failure of the the, the the meat or is it a failure of the execution all of which we can manage but we and if we can't have honest conversation about it we can't can affect that part two is is on sort of early right like it doesn't help me to tell me sort of midway that, that that the house burned down like like tell me that the house is on fire and we can do something about sort of solving and saving the things that 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 are the most valuable and then the last piece of this is 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 frequency like like it it, it Again, quarterly updates are nice and are maybe required in our legal docs, but there's a lot that happens over the course of a quarter, particularly for an early stage startup. And so being able to have that that frequency and that habitual set of conversations either every two weeks, once a month, is just really important just so so that the investor can can have, uh, you know, keep really good tabs on the company. If, if you're still, if you haven't met the company yet, and it's, it's sort of a prospective meeting, you know, I, I, it's, I always advise startups to start those conversations as early as possible. Tease the idea, see what the, you know, see what the, how how that idea resonates with that investor, because if, like early knows for for companies raising money are sometimes as valuable, and, and helping to limit uh, the 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 range of people that you've got to have conversations with, just as much as sometimes getting a yes. Um, but the one caveat to that, though, is that that we track, you know, endlessly. So you tell me, you know, a year ago that sales in 2018, by the end of the year, are going to be $5 million. When we meet in Q4 of 2018, I'm going to pull up the old deck and say, hey, you said that sales are going to be $5 million. Why are sales 2.2 million? What happens? So there is a slight risk to that, but but it's better to have because now now you've got a conversation. I was interested enough to, to to take the first meeting. I'm interested enough to to take the second meeting, and interested enough to go back and compare the notes. So that I'm obviously interested. So the the ability for you to go back and say, well, well, you know, sales were off for X, Y, and Z reasons, is easily explainable. But you're gonna have to explain it.
1: What are some of the things, Mike, that founders are looking for from investors? You know, when a founder sends out an update email, um, you've got, on one end of the spectrum, the investor that never hits reply, never uh, really gets involved in the business at all, and is just sort of there on the cap table. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the investor that can be all up in your business every day, blowing up your cell phone, texting you. Uh, what's kind of that sweet spot, at least from your perspective as a founder, but then also working with 2000 plus other founders as customers,
3: man, I wouldn't want either of those people on my
1: it's, why I said, those are the two ends of the spectrum.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, I think really what, uh, founders want at the end of the day is reassurance, uh, and. And, and, and help, right? If you think about uh, a startup or a business like Visible or, or Powder Powderkeg, uh, there's probably a million things going right, and there's probably a million things going wrong. And the one big thing we try to educate our customers on and just the market in general is that sharing what's going wrong uh, or challenging is... is how you can get the most leverage and help from your investors because they've seen this movie before right it's but it's also the hardest for a company right because you're admitting not failure but that something's not going right and that's scary uh to kind of open that up because your view of the world is just your one company versus an investor right like rise of the rest where they have seen this hundreds if not thousands of times and you know they can jump in super early and and help whether that's an issue with customer churn or an employee issue where, you know, you're thinking about trying to get someone out of the business or hiring, right? So there's this, um, you know, idea of leverage and engagement and, and having your investor say like, Hey, everything's gonna be okay. Right. This has happened before. You're definitely not alone. Uh, but to get to that point, you know, you have to communicate with them. And to, to David's point, I guess, on, you know, kind of frequency and, and, uh, just overall level of cadence, I think that's important as well. Uh, The shorter, the better, and probably the more frequent, the better. You know, I'm not saying every single day, but if, you know, one or two times a month uh, and a condensed update, investors are not going to read a long-winded 10-page narrative of what's going on. Uh, They want something kind of spoon-fed directly into their email inbox and uh, being able to engage with it there. So, uh, you know, we always try to say shorter, the better, more frequent, the better. It's just going to be easier for you to put it together in all honesty, too, than some uh, narrative and novel of what's happened over the last quarter, because usually when that happens, that means like something is going bad. You're trying to cover up something in the middle and then it's just, it's not good for anyone. D-
1: David, how do you like to engage in investor update emails or do you like to engage in investor update emails?
2: Yeah, I'm the guy who's all up in your business. I want to know. I, 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 like, I think I, I love the email. I think the emails, we, we've actually established a little technology here that will ingest them for us automatically. And so we, we're really trying to use technology to keep tabs on on sort of things that are going well, things that aren't going well. And I think that I think Mike hits on a really important point. Like the lowlights, for me, the highlights, the, the things that are going well, the things that are going up and to the right are always really interesting to, to hear it's it's less the the headline and more the reasoning for those things but for the low lights the things that aren't going well understanding those and getting involved in those early are really important for me and and so so the, the frequency of that I mean monthly is the right about the right cadence to have some kind of update sort of yellow green red light update um, and and I, I I really you know with the exception of like, you know, extreme things on the positive or negative side that need to be dealt with immediately, obviously those those take precedence. But on a normal course, like a monthly email highlighting or, or really calling out highlights and lowlights are really important. I think the other thing that a lot of founders, you know, particularly early founders, new founders struggle with, and I think they'd all be better served to start thinking about this, is is tasking your both your board members and your investors particularly with certain tasks that fit within sort of their, 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 their know-how, their, their wheelhouse. And I, I think it's, you know, so for example, you don't ask the, the, the junior partner or, or junior analyst observer on your board to, you know, for C-level introductions, but like, hey, I need some help with, like, some reporting techniques. Can you send me four or five examples of really good board reports that I can start to use and, as I engage the, the board here? That's a great way to task a specific person with a specific duty and they can they can fulfill that easily for for sort of c-suite um, c-suite introductions for customers, going directly to some of your more senior board members or some of the the, the big wigs on your cap table, really easy ask and and like I, I really like would 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 want to persuade strongly the entrepreneurs to, to, to task people up with specific duties so that they, you're able to maximize and they don't feel like they're spending all of their time working with one particular company.
1: And is that something that you'd expect to see come through in an investor update email, or is that something you'd you'd expect to see kind of come in, in more of a personalized from the founder type of ask? Oh,
2: a little bit of both. There are always going to be general asks, right? We're, sure. we're looking for, you know, a couple of things, you know, one, two, three, we're looking for an introduction to XYZ company. If anybody has it, that'd be great. We're looking, we're, we're interviewing auditors. Anybody have any good experience with auditors? Like those are good, but, but I think that a lot of those should be followed up with specific emails to particularly those who've already leaned in and said, look, let me, let me know how I can help. Let me know how I can be most impactful to the company. And, and if, if they've asked, like take them, take them up on their offer by, by all means.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, um, I, I can see we're, we're almost at time here. Before we break, um, I was hoping that uh, maybe, Mike, you could uh, close with some advice. And then, David, I wanted, I, I wanted to ask you for some advice as well. Um, Mike, my, my question from you is I, I read recently, and I think this was on the Visible uh, Medium blog, which is uh, it's never been easier to start a company, but it's also never been harder to build one. I think that was from Naval Ravikant from AngelList. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the competition for capital and talent is greater than ever. Uh, obviously your product helps with that, but if you were to kind of give one piece of parting advice on how to compete for that capital, uh, what would that one piece of advice be?
3: Yeah. Uh, I think biggest piece of advice is, uh, especially if you're, if you're, really thinking about raising capital as part of this question i guess is is fundraising really is kind of a 24 7 365 thing right it's fundraising is like one of those things you're always raising and you're actually never raising right because if you tell an investor you're raising that's like kind of weird but so it's like you're always raising and never raising and uh you know another uh thing that's you know super common that we love to reiterate right is people love to invest in lines and not dots so invest in relationships early uh even if it's maybe someone that's outside of the the funding zone for your company now that person certainly will be in 12 or 18 or 24 months and having a warm relationship and just kind of dripping them um like you would uh a, and a nurturing a, a lead in your sales funnel same thing with investors right i'm not saying give them and open them up everything in terms of hey, here's what, exactly what we're doing and, and what's going right and wrong. But kind of give them that high-level sizzle and keep them engaged so that when you are fundraising for the next round, uh, you have super warm people that kind of, that know your trajectory and you're not starting from scratch. Because then what's going to happen is, you know, you're going to start from scratch and then you have meeting one, meeting two, meeting three, meeting four. Because they're going to try to connect those dots versus if you already have, um, you know, a, a, auditable kind of log of what your business has done, uh, you're ready to go from, you know, hit the ground running, create a lot of momentum and create a really good process for yourself.
1: That's great advice, particularly um, important for founders that aren't in Silicon Valley or in New York, where maybe you'd be bumping into investors kind of on a regular basis in meetings and giving kind of the ad hoc updates. Um, using a, a digital tool like email can definitely help a ton. I, I appreciate that uh, advice. And then David, I was going to ask you for some advice, uh, for investors. Uh, why should investors be paying attention to this middle of the country reason or the, you know, quote unquote, the rest, uh, of the country outside of Silicon Valley in New York and, uh, beyond the why, like how should these investors be looking to invest in these, in these high value companies?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I I think that the you know we, we've talked about this a bunch today. You know, you're seeing so many trends from the boomeranging of talent out out of out of the coastal epicenters. Back into hometowns and sort of other big cities like Chicago, and and you're you're seeing that trend happen and accelerate. You're seeing, you know, you guys read read the, the the press just as much as I do about sort of the costs of operating a business in in some of these big big coastal cities, and you're seeing opportunity and it, like we've never seen before in in sort of the heartland, and and the ability to have and, and harness that into startups is huge. It's huge for for college graduates. It's huge for communities that that are dying and and need some of this new talent, need some of this resurgence to come and and start a company. Because, you know, when you start a company, it's not just the the 20 people that you hire. It's sort of the coffee shop that you guys go to, the bars that you go to, the the lunch places that you go to. Like, it really starts to lift the community. And, And if you want to be an economic development, like, participant, like, Working for a startup is a huge way to do it. Um, the the how on that is always going to be a little bit more challenging because it, it's 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 there, there's such a relativistic perspective about about sort of always wanting to to fit the the Silicon Valley growth model, which frankly a lot of startups outside of those 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 coastal hubs aren't able to to meet. And so you see frequently, for example, you'll see a Series A a Valley company that would be a Series A or a Seed company ending up being a series A company outside of a, the coast because it's just taken a little bit longer. The flip side of that is often those companies are either further along because they, they've they had to be or have generated revenue and have sort of proven out a bit of a business model because they've had to. And, and so you're seeing a slightly different um, set of metrics for investing. The, the other big thing is is sort of the, the difference between the types of investors and, and what 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 determines the great proof point, right? Like it, it, because of the way that a lot of these companies outside of the coast has had to be funded, you're, you're going to see more revenue traction, but sometimes that's at, at the expense of faster growth that comes with bigger, you know, bigger fundraising. And so you're going to have to merit sort of um, growth versus revenue traction is that constant push or pull that that often investors that come from outside of these regions that come into them, are, are, are having that having to be disabused of as they come into the into the regions to try to invest like these companies want to grow typically slower but into just as ripe types of market opportunities so i, I wouldn't let that dissuade investors from looking at, at investments in rising
0: thanks again for listening to today's episode if you have any thoughts <clears throat> Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you have any thoughts or feedback on the conversation with David and Mike, let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powdercakecom forward slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups.